0: I'm Satya Doyle-Bayak, and this is the Salome Podcast.
1: Something is making its approach to us. Our wars are results of projection, of not
0: being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight inside of ourselves. Here we are,
1: how will we hold this, how will we hold the light inside the dark?
0: If consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual. In each episode, my co-host Carol Ferris and I explore the social and personal relevance of Carl Jung's magnum opus known as The Red Book. Carol and I began recording these episodes as live salons online on the first Sunday of our COVID quarantine in Portland, Oregon in the spring of 2020. Each week, we welcome the community into our conversation with a concluding Q&A. So today we are moving through about 80 or more pages of text which is scrutinies at the at the end of the reader edition of the red book we're going to dive into all of it why we are doing it in one salon instead of four (laughs) so let's start today with the very end of the calligraphic text so i said last week that the calligraphic text ends on page 189 And that it ends with an ellipses. It actually, I realized the ellipses is in a moment. This just, Jung transcribed this portion of the draft into the Red Book in this calligraphic text. And in the facsimile edition, this is the last calligraphy. It's the last, you know, um, of this illuminated calligraphic portion of Jung's work. So this is, we ended here last week and then went on, and we read that in The Magician and concluded The Magician. What the next page, if you have the facsimile edition, the next page is that Jung in 1959 wrote an epilogue. And that epilogue ends in the middle and it ends with an ellipsis. And if you turn in your reader to page 555, you can read along with me. So this just directly follows the calligraphic text Jung at this point this is 1959 right so this is 30 years later because the the red book in its various forms went from 1913 to 1930, which is to say there was a short portion of his of of those years Jung was actually engaged in dialogue with his soul in dialogue with his unconscious he was engaged in the act of imagination that is in the black books. And then there was a long stretch in which he was moving all of that into the red bound leather uh, book that we know as the red book. And he was turning it into calligraphy. And he was then over years and years adding in all the extraordinary images that we see. So that 1913 to 1930 in 1959, just a couple years before his death, he came back to this book that he by that, at that point knew was never really going to be finished the way he may have envisioned it would be. And he wrote on the next page the following epilogue. I worked on this book for 16 years. My acquaintance with alchemy in 1930 took me away from it. The beginning of the end came in 1928, when Wilhelm, Richard Wilhelm or Richard Wilhelm, sent me the text of The Golden Flower, an alchemical treatise There, the contents of this book found their way into actuality and I could no longer continue working on it. To the superficial observer, it will appear like madness. It would also have developed into one had I not been able to absorb the overpowering force of the original experiences. With the help of alchemy, I could finally arrange them into a whole. I always knew that these experiences contained something precious, and therefore I knew of nothing better than to write them down in a precious, that is to say, costly book, and to paint the images that emerged through reliving it all, as well as I could. I knew how frightfully inadequate this undertaking was, but despite much work and many distractions, I remained true to it, even if another possibility never ellipses. And that's where he then left off in the epilogue. So even the epilogue is unfinished. Just a small note on this, again, for, for future diving in, you know, Sonu Shamdasani's introduction is really stunningly filled with information and history and, and research. And the editorial note on page 105 outlines, the dates of all of this various material. And now that we have the black books, I can feel them magnetically pulling my attention. Carol and I were talking a little bit about how this day-to-day diving into scrutinies with all of you feels even more overwhelming because now the black books exist and there are endless uh, roads to go down now in terms of comparing the dialogues and learning what's been left out and and on and on. So there's a lot more research and exploration to dive into in the future, but as a little cheat sheet on page 105 of the reader, you can see the various dates of all of this material and that scrutinies began in 1914, but really for the most part unfolds 1915, 1916, and that all the previous material ended in 1914, in April, 1914. So I think we'll start there, kind of contextualizing what this work is and why it has been included in the reader and in the facsimile edition, but that it is not, Jung never put it into the calligraphic text, right? He never put it into the red leather bound volume. And so why did Sonu Shamdasani, the editor, choose to include this in the red book? It's very clearly some continuation of the, of the work that we've already been exploring. But if you read it yourself, there's a lot of different ways to kind of explore. Should this be considered part of the Red Book? Is it part of the Red Book? You know, And that's part of what we're going to be discussing today, all of what the contents are here. So a little of this, I'll just offer a couple more pages for your own exploration. A, a little of this, page 45 of the introduction, I will just read a little of this, and also page 108 of the editorial note just contextualizes some of all of this. So this is Sonu Shamdasani. He says, the draft had, cont- had contained fantasies from October 1913 to February 1914. In the winter of 1917, Jung wrote a fresh manuscript called Scrutinies, which began where he had left off. In this, he transcribed fantasies from April 1913 until June 1916. As in the first two books of Liber Novus, Jung interspersed the fantasies with interpretive commentaries. He included the sermons, and and we'll get to this a lot today, the Seven Sermons of the Dead, in this material, and now added Philemon's commentaries on each sermon. In these, Philemon stressed the compensatory nature of his teachings, He deliberately stressed precisely those conceptions that the dead lacked. Scrutinies effectively forms Liber Tertius of Liber Novus. The complete sequence of the text would thus be Liber Primus, Liber Segundus, and Liber Tertius' scrutinies, which again is how they've placed in this book. So the last thing I'll say here just as kind of set up is it's my own feeling that Even though there's some contradictory language, so Jung distinctly in the draft of the first part writes the end. And there is a sense, I think, that he was tying things up in that draft. He writes and there feels like it kind of goes to a crescendo and it ends as a book would end. And then there's moments in this other draft called Scrutinies, where he says the earlier part of this book, there's a couple points when he says, referring to the earlier part of this book. And that was a lot of the influence of why Sonia Shamdasani and presumably others really decided to include it in this work as a whole. But it feels to me much more like a sequel, and in fact, a separate work entirely. And again, that's where we're going to explore today. So, Carol, I just obviously just said a great deal. Mm -hmm. What are you thinking about how this text kind of fits into the whole?
1: Well, after my first read through it, which which I, uh, I got completely captured by, and I said to you, it feels operatic to me in the sense of a work, of an opus, and that Liber Novus and Liber Secundus are the main act, that they're the, the narrative in what an opera is called the recitative, where where things are made beautiful and explained then and as a kind of ending not just a coda there's what's called the cabaletta, which is a a sweet and piercing distillation of what you have already heard and observed and then there is the end and i that's how i was thinking of it that something had really that that this was a cabaletta that this was a summation and an integration of the experiences of the red book. But then I looked at the astrology and I see that, that yes, it's a follow on and a coda and a summing of the experiences, but it's also very clearly, and this is especially from an astrological point of view, a pathway to what's going to come next to the, to how, how is he going to integrate this? Which, of course, leads to years of clinical work and a a practicum on otherness and shadow. And that you can see it in the astrology. So I went from thinking that this was a, a sort of a appendix in a way to the Red Book to seeing it as a bridge mm-hmm. between the experiences of the collective unconscious and the how to make conscious and integrate the voice that his soul is saying to him this this you have to do this and he's resisting mightily you know why do i have to do this it means i'm going to be lonely means i can't have the solace and the comfort of the community and i'm fighting with you my soul and and but that's what it leads to is this conscious integration and what you read Absorb the overpowering force of the original experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, and any of us who have made this journey, who have not emulated his journey, but have been inspired by that, I think this scrutiny, is, it's, it's even the word to scrutinize something to bring your attention and your focus to bear on something. So this is less a surrender to the unconscious, which the the first two books is about, than it is trying to get the prima materia to come into some kind of living, breathing body. And then where will that go? How, you know, not how will I perform this or how will I produce something? But, but now what, you know, what, if I built the container for this, then, then what, is incumbent on me to do next. Mm -hmm. It's such a good point because
0: it it does feel Jung is a different creature in this, in this book. Right. Which again, to me feels like a sequel. It's like, here's where the character is now a few years later. You know, he's, he is different. Philemon is a completely different character and his wrestling with his soul. (laughs) Say again.
1: So, So is the
0: soul and yeah, the soul, his relationship with the soul is like, woo. Mm-hmm. So, it's pretty intense. One other just important point as we set up here is from the beginning of scrutinies on page 461 in the reader to page 474. This is all still in 1914, which is which is closer to where the last draft left off and and all of the last visions left off. And it all precedes the outbreak of World War 1. And it all precedes Jung stepping down from, from a lot of external professional responsibilities. He steps off of boards and leaves the hospital. And so then again, most, almost all of Scrutinies comes after that whole phase of his life and of the world. It's a massive transition. Carol, do you want to set us up there and and bring in the astrological component? Yes.
1: So what I got interested in in terms of how time moves us, how as we enter and begin to adapt to the geography and moment and season of our time, that we are in a constant state of adaptation and connection and movement and integration. So when I looked at the chronology of the first part of Scrutinies, which takes him from 1914, to um, 1916, including a year in which nothing happens. In which, the, the, and that is the year that the war breaks out. And now that war isn't an internal war, it's in the world, it's an outer war. And I think that that has a lot to say about, about the, the quiet of the internal uh, conflict. From April to June of 1914, the beginning of Scrutinies is uh, he's excoriating himself. It's, he says, um, if I tame you, beast, I will make a virtue of self-contempt. And he's, as Satya said, he resigns as president of the International Psycho-Analytical Analyt- Foundation. He resigns as a lecturer at the medical faculty of Zurich. His soul is speaking to him from a great height he says um she says i belong to above and he's he's bemoaning her distance and and caviling about it and she says can you not remain on your way for once and then he says i fear the solitude of my thinking which depart from accustomed paths and we'll hear this again in the later part of scrutinies where Philemon and his soul talk about, you know, when Philemon says to the mother, Will you take him as your child? She says, Not until he gives up commingling. You know, this this final the ego insisting on its uniqueness and its separateness. And he's really struggling with that here. And and the I his I is really struggling. That's all through 1914. Then it, there's a year of silence. And then in 1915, he has an image of an osprey seizing a fish and flying up into the skies, and his soul speaks to him again for the first time in a year. And Philemon appears and says, I want to turn you around. I want to make you into gold, the alchemical process of distilling the soul to its golden state. And that in order to do that, that that Jung has to come to terms with selfless love as a sin And Philemon says, you have to enter into the grave of the god. And this is the first place where the dead begin to make their appearance is on page 491, 495. Then in 1916, he sees his soul and they have an incredible dialogue. And Philemon says to him, this is on page 498, as as Jung and his anima are having it out, Philemon says, remove oh man the divine too from your soul what a devilish farce she carries on with you as long as she carries on with you as long as she still arrogates divine power over you so then Philemon talks about shielding her and taking her away and then Jung and his soul they they have a lover's quarrel and you know you <laughs> and I talked about this for you know when when he later talks about that spirituality and sexuality are diamonds that you do not possess. They possess you. Mm -hmm. And any of us who has ever been in the grip of lust, which Jung is clearly struggling with, as well as profound spirituality, is going to say hateful, hurtful things out loud. And that is absolutely what is going on here. You want to read a few of these lines? Because they're pretty shocking. Yeah. Jung says to his soul, have you heard what Philemon has been saying? How does this tone strike you? Is his advice good? His soul says, do not mock or else you strike yourself. Do not forget to love me. And then there's a long place where Jung says, it's difficult for me to unite hate and love. And she says, hate and love mean the same to me. And I need everything for the great journey that I intend to begin after your disappearance. And then he says, because Philemon has said, throw her in prison. She's a whore, throw her in prison. And Jung says, do you agree? And she says, of course, there I have peace and can collect myself. Your human world makes me drunk. Drunk. The bloody intoxication seizes me, hurls me again and again into living matter from a dark, fearful, creative urge that formerly brought me close to the lifeless and ignited the terrible lust for procreation in me. Force me into confinement where I can find resistance and my own law. And Jung says, how divinely beautiful you are. We had a long conversation about this again
0: earlier, but, but I have wrestled with this as one can imagine, because again, I mean, Jung, he's using, he uses whore and bitch in this section yes. several times, and and this is on page 496, you know, there's this line he says, and there's qu- quite a lot, um, in speaking of the soul, he says, she is a hellish divine treasure to be kept behind walls of iron and in the deepest vault. She always wants to get out and, sc- and scatter glittering beauty. Beware, because you have already been betrayed. You'll never find a more disloyal, more cunning, and heinous woman than your soul. How should I praise the miracle of her beauty and perfection? Does she not stand in the brilliance of immortal youth? Is her love not intoxicating wine and her wisdom the primordial cleverness of serpents? Shield men from her and her from men. Listen to what she wails and sings in prison, but don't let her escape as she will immediately turn whore. As a feminist and a woman, I struggle with this languaging, but taking a psychological and mythic perspective, there's this quality of, you know, thinking of, of uh, Odysseus and the sirens, you know, and the struggle of men to, to mature their own anima so that they are not beguiled by it externally. And arguably that women, and again, this stuff gets so complicated in terms of gender identity and where we are right now with really understanding sex and gender in culture. So I really, as always, encourage everyone to deeply sort this through for yourself instead of swallowing the psychology whole, because it's immensely complicated. But the idea is that women then also must wrestle mightily with their animus, deeply in this complicated, fighting, struggled way in order to develop and transform. And as Jung is doing that with his own inner, beguiling, whorish feminine, hopefully this is where he's retracting the projection from the external, where he feels also trapped, as we explored last week, by Tony Wolf and and all these women in his world who certainly want something from him, that Jung is trying to differentiate what all that means. The image that most comes up for me around this is if anyone remembers the end of The Little Mermaid, the Disney version, The Little Mermaid, where you can see Eric is the prince and the split feminine, right? There's The Little Mermaid and then I think her name's Vanessa. She's Ursula, which becomes the, this other beautiful young woman, right? So there's these two young maiden feminine one is sort of the real soul or the real partner for the prince and the other is this kind of beguiling witch she's the she's the dark feminine from below who is tricking eric into thinking she is a maiden or a partner for him and she has stolen the voice of ariel she's stolen the voice of of the little mermaid right so so this is for me just an image of kind of how do these different, if we break apart these different versions of the feminine or these different versions of the anima, that in that part of, of that, you know, that image, that story, that cartoon, Eric is completely transfixed and completely uh, catatonic in relation to this, this beguiling feminine. And he has to break the spell. And that's how I feel what Jung is doing here Again, yeah. when I can get past my own triggers and my own frustrations and my own difficulty here, you can feel Jung wrestling with the feminine, the beguiling trickster feminine here.
1: Well, and it's what that, those are his directions from Philemon about putting her in jail. And it's Jung coming at the very end of this section. When she's asked a lot of him, she says, um, I want blood and love, you know, not the rest of it. And then Jung says to his soul, you, my soul. Force mortal men to labor and suffer for your salvation. This is the soul and the anima as the soul and both the beguiling feminine and the ardent devoted, even maternal life bearing feminine. I demand that you do this for the earthly fortune of humankind, the land of milk and honey. And she says, touch the earth, press your hand into matter and shape it with care. So, you know, he's, be, between his struggle with his ego and his struggle with his soul, I, I want to show the horoscope of this time because it, it's very. After we have seen Jung from the very beginning, when we started meeting in March, what we were, what we saw in his horoscope is then the inner wheel. Here is Jung's natal chart. This is where we are right now in our discussion. We are at the point where the dead begin to arrive uh, and begin to ask for the sermons. And then this outer wheel is when it's all over. And in the earlier part, all of the action was happening in the collective unconscious, what Jung came to call the collective unconscious. But in this section that we're reading now in Scrutinies, Now time has brought Jung to a self, which includes an I, and it's bringing him to the not self, which is the partner. And so this is the time when Jung's balancing act between what we could call a constitution and a surrender to relation, to being relational, is now the integration of all the imaginal work that's gone on, now it's time to integrate it and to both have a self and a not-self. Not just the not-self projected onto the other, but the inner not-self. And this is, this is the wrestle that he's been doing in this year, 1914, that then leads up to 1915 and then begins to integrate in earnest in 1916. So that,
0: that wrestling between the first house and the seventh house coming out of the, the unconscious.
1: Yeah, yeah. And in, in the astrological model, if we think about the map as inner geographies, not just you were born somewhere with a latitude and longitude into some season, but inner geographies, then the first house is in, in traditional astrology called the constitution How are we constituted? Not the ego I, the I, the capital I of I, and 180 degrees as a polarity point, and this is really what all the sermons are about, is the opposites, is the not I. And when the not I gets projected onto women, onto partners, onto political parties, onto other, then the failure to integrate and stay balanced in the in the inner geography of our soul, this is what Jung is now having to integrate what his visions showed him. Now he's got to live it. Mm -hmm. I'm just
0: taking that in because it, it is, he is really, you can feel him starting to translate all of those experiences and journeys into a psychology, but he sort of does that by way of sermons. And in this section, he's wrestling with this whole huge component of Jung's history is I don't want to be a prophet. You know, I may have gathered massive amounts of, of revelation and insight from the collective unconscious, from soul, from God, from the self, but I don't want to be a prophet. I don't want to be the leader of a church. I don't want to have a flock that I'm teaching to and preaching to. So he's working to translate this into a science but in this period of 1916, he has these experiences with the dead and what starts to come forward is is a series of sermons, seven sermons, seven sermons to the dead, which is how, what he calls them. And each sermon is kind of like a maxim, you know, there's a story to be told in each one of these. Carol, let's just talk a little bit about how this starts in 1916 and some of the history. In early 1916,
1: remembering nothing has happened for a year. There hasn't been any inner work for a year from the end of 1914 until the beginning of 1916. And at the very beginning of the resumption of the process, which if we look on page 505, one night she suddenly, my soul, one night she suddenly came to me with a sense of unease and anxiety and exclaimed, what am I seeing? What does the future harbor? Blazing fire. A fire hovers in the air. It draws near a flame, many flames, a searing miracle. How many lights burn, my beloved? It is the mercy of the eternal fire. The breath of fire descends on you. And he's horrified and frightened. And she says, Have patience. Fire surrounds you, an immeasurable sea of embers. And then again, he's resisting her. He resists her. I don't want to do this and he says thrice damned fate why can't you leave me in seclusion and in the middle of all of this the dead arrive in early in 1916 and she says let them speak Mm
0: -hmm. they say the dead say we have come back from jerusalem where we did not find what we sought Mm -hmm. and this is a reference back to page 335 of the red book reader's edition in which the dead say that they're leaving for Jerusalem. So they went to Jerusalem. They've come back. They're talking to Jung again, and they're talking to Philemon. And they say, you know, we're back from Jerusalem where we did not find what we sought. We implore you to let us in. You have what we desire, not your blood, but your light. That is it. So just a little more setup. This is the reason I was feeling... For a couple of days, kind of overwhelmed about this gathering today, this salon, because there's really so much going on in all of this. But the 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 final setup for this is is a chunk of Jungi of history of, of Jung, which you can read in Memories, Dreams, Reflections. It you can read in um, on page forty of the Red Book introduction as well. And I won't dive too deeply into it, but it's all an interesting story. A lot of it is kind of classic Jungian lore, you know. But the idea is that these very bizarre, synchronistic, weird events started happening at Jung's home around this time in 1916. So I'm just going to read a little bit of this. Jung writes in Memories, Dreams, Reflections, Very gradually, the outlines of an inner change began making their appearance within me. In 1916, I felt an urge to give shape to something. I was compelled from within, as it were, to formulate and express what might have been said by Philemon. This is how the Septum Sermis Ad Mortuas, Seven Sermons of the Dead, with its peculiar language came into being. It began with a restlessness, but I did not know what they meant, You know who they were. There was this ominous feeling. I had the strange feeling that the air was filled with ghostly entities, that my house was being haunted. He says, around five o'clock in the afternoon on a Sunday, the front doorbell began ringing frantically. There was no one in sight. I was sitting near the doorbell and not only did I hear it, but I saw it moving. We all simply stared at one another. The atmosphere was thick, believe me. Then I knew that something had to happen. The whole house was filled as if with a crowd present, crammed full of spirits. They were packed deep right up to the door and the air was so thick It was scarcely possible to breathe. And for myself, I was all a a quiver with the question, for God's sake, what in the world is this? And then they cried out in chorus, we have come back from Jerusalem where we found not what we sought. And that is the beginning of the seven sermons. So, So that's a piece from Memories, Dreams, Reflections. There's a lot more story behind it around dreams that his son had and all this, but there was something afoot. And here
1: we are now with Philemon. And here we are at the beginning of seven sermons that are really, this felt very much like a Greek play to me, the call and response, the call of the dead, because each time the dead have a particular question, then his soul says, let them speak. Mm -hmm. And so they speak and Philemon answers. So in the first sermon, I'll just sum, summarize it since we won't have time to really dive deeply down into each of the sermons. In the first sermon, they, they say what we're looking for the light and we didn't find it. So Philemon begins by talking about nothingness. He says, I begin with nothingness.
0: Nothingness Isn't, is the same as fullness. In infinity, full is as good
1: as empty. This is a mandala that Jung created that is a quite extraordinary picture of of opposites. On page 512, when he's talking about the pleroma, the fullness and the emptiness, on page 5 he says, distinguish the qualities of the pleroma. These qualities are pairs of opposites, such as The effective and the ineffective, the fullness and the emptiness, the living and the dead, the different and the same, light and darkness, hot and cold, force and matter, time and space, good and evil, the beautiful and the ugly, the one and the many. The pairs of opposites are the qualities of the pleroma that do not exist because they cancel themselves out. And when he goes on to talk about, this is called the Sistema Munditotius. And this is Jung's mandala of the opposites of the Pleroma. So that when you look at the drawing itself, so this is a horoscope. It's a picture of of wholeness. And the Pleroma is not, Contained, but this is the border. What the Chinese call the Taiyang. This is the place where, where the where matter meets spirit. So at the top here is a young boy in the wings, and at the bottom is the serpent, Abraxas. And here Abraxas is growing the tree of life. Then on the left is the monster, and on the right is the larva. So at the at the root of this circle is matter, physical, material life, and the constant circle of birth and redeath, and at, above is eternal life. And I love this little winged mouse, which is, um, he calls it the diamond of art, and the winged dragon, which is the diamond of spirituality. So this is spirit and matter balanced top to bottom. And then from left to right, east is the body and the serpent and the phallus, and in the right is the wing and the dove and the feminine, and this is this is the cold, and this is hot. So this this is a, if you have a chance to see this, this systema munditosius, this reconciliation of opposites as the stuff of the whole, mm-hmm. is Jung's kind of a, a really wonderful visual summation of his understanding.
0: Love that you brought that in. This also refers back to the first mandala that Jung drew, which is Appendix A. It's at the back of the reader's edition. Oh. So that this refers back to this first just pencil drawing that Jung did, this mandala drawing. And that image that Carol just shared is not anywhere in the Red Book, but it was, pu- it was published separately and it's a separate art
1: piece. Is that right, Carol? He yeah. calls it the antimonies of the microcosm within the macrocosm. The world and its antimonies, the world and its polarities and opposites, reconciled in one world. Beautiful.
0: Okay, so that's just the beginning. So Jung published these seven sermons under a pseudonym, as if it were this kind of ancient Gnostic text. And he published it in 1916, I believe, 1916. But he published it way, way before any other work that was being digested from the Red Book was really out in the world, and certainly, obviously, long before the Red Book. So this little portion of Scrutinies is the earliest piece that made it out into the world. But Jung Jung published it under a pseudonym and was embarrassed that he did so, because he felt like it was a childish sort of ploy that he had done to kind of make this all seem like it was an ancient Gnostic revelation. But now we have it in the original form here. It's also it's also what ended up being published is at the back of Memories, Dreams, Reflections, as an appendix. If people if you want to dive in on your own in a separate form. So page five sixteen now, we have the second sermon. Carol, why don't you take this away?
1: Well, the dead say, We want to know about God. Where is God? Is God dead? And Philemon says, God is not dead. He's as alive as ever. God is creation, for he is something definite, and therefore differentiated from the Pleroma. God is a quality of the Pleroma. God is the Pleroma itself. Then he goes on to say, there is a God above God. We call him by his name, Abraxas, more indefinite than God and the devil. And then the dead raise a great tumult. They're not happy to hear this. And Philemon says, the dead need salvation. They're raising a tumult because they want to be saved from this reality. They're a great waiting flock hovering over their graves and long for the knowledge that belief and the rejection of belief have breathed their last. And this is where Jung is coming to terms with the great Piscean age of separateness that requires redemption. Mm-hmm. And this is the introduction of the high God. And then the third sermon where the dead say, tell us more about this highest God. And Jung goes on to enumerate the qualities of this highest God.
0: Well, and Philemon, right? So Philemon goes on, yeah, to enumerate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: So let me read just a little bit about what Philemon says, because the language, I think the language in this part is extraordinary. And so on page 520, Abraxas is the sun, and at the same time the eternally sucking gorge of emptiness, of the diminisher and dismemberer of the devil. The power of Abraxas is twofold, but you do not see it because in your eyes the warring opposites of this power are canceled out. What the sun god speaks is live. What the devil speaks is dead But Abrax speaks that hallowed and accursed word that is at once life and death. He is as splendid as the lion in the instant he strikes down his victims. He is as beautiful as a spring day. He is the great and the small pan alike. He is Priapus. He is the monster of the underworld, a thousand armed polyp, a coiled knot of winged serpents, frenzy, he is the hermaphrodite of the earliest beginning he is the lord of toads and frogs which live in the water and go up on the land whose chorus ascends at noon and at midnight and then he goes on to, to say to recognize to look upon him is blindness to recognize him is sickness to worship him is death to fear him is wisdom not to resist him is redemption so that's quite a sermon and the dead are not happy about that but they're starting to get it so in the sermon they come running and these right these are christian dead right they're they're they're
0: christians who are trying to find salvation or the animal body some sense of wholeness some sense of redemption for the lives they haven't lived again a lot of this came up in previous chapters of the first of the second book, Liber Segundus, but there's this quality of of Shiva here, right? I mean, that's part of mm-hmm. since I'm very unfamiliar with Abraxas outside of Jung's work, this word that refers to Egyptian and Greek mythology, but this quality of everythingness, and so part of it for me is sort of thinking more in Hindu mythology, this Shiva kind of quality, right? And um, the and just,
1: and the destroyer,
0: yeah, and that and that the Christian dead are not thrilled with this more Gnostic version of things in which everything is together,
1: the union of the opposites. Well, and then he goes on in the fourth sermon the dead came running sooner, filling the place with their mutterings, and said, Speak to us about gods and devils, accursed one. And then in the fourth sermon, Philemon begins to talk about Eros, the burning god, Eros and the growing God, the tree of life, and which leads him into, in the fifth sermon, a discussion about sexuality and spirituality. Do you want to follow on on that?
0: So let me read just a little bit from, this is page 524. This is the fourth sermon. The sun God is the highest good, the devil the opposite. Thus you have two gods, but there are many high and good ones and many great evils, Among these are two devil gods. One is the burning one, the other the growing one. The burning one is Eros in the form of a flame. It shines by consuming. The growing one is the tree of life. It greens by heaping up growing living matter. Happy am I. I'm skipping forward to 525 here. Happy am I who can recognize the multiplicity and diversity of the gods, but woe unto you who replace this incompatible multiplicity with a single god. In so doing, you produce the torment of incomprehension and mutilate the creation whose nature and aim is differentiation.
1: So I, I have to, we have to just go to the next line. This is one of my favorite lines in the next paragraph, the gods are many while men are few. The gods are mighty and endure their manifoldness. Like the stars, they abide in solitude, separated by vast differences distances. Therefore, they dwell together and need communion so that they may bear their separateness. And then he says, the multiplicity of the gods corresponds to the multiplicity of men. That idea, they endure their manifoldness. It's like a recognition of that power Mm -hmm. and of its enduringness. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, we are going at a fast clip here. Page 528 is where the fifth sermon arises. When the following night came, the dead approached noisily, pushing and shoving. They were scoffing and exclaimed, teach us, fool, about the church and holy communion. But Philemon stepped before them and began to speak. And this is the fifth sermon to the dead. The world of the gods is made manifest in spirituality and in sexuality. The celestial ones appear in spirituality, the earthly in sexuality. Spirituality conceives and embraces. It is womanlike, and therefore we call it matter Cholestes, the celestial mother. Sexuality engenders and creates it is man like, and therefore we call it phallus, the earthly father. Sexuality of man is more earthly, that of woman is more spiritual. The spirituality of man is more heavenly, it moves towards the greater. The spirituality of woman is more earthly, it moves towards the smaller. I'm going to skip a minute here. Man and woman become devils to each other if they do not separate their spiritual ways for the essence of creation is differentiation. The sexuality of man goes towards the earthly. The sexuality of woman goes towards the spiritual man and woman become devils to each other. If they do not distinguish their sexuality, this is Jung is beginning to differentiate his, psychology of genders and his understanding here again of the anima and the animus. And we saw him wrestling with a lot of this in earlier chapters of the Red Book, right? But he's wrestling with what is gender and how do these different figures and forms show up? And he's starting to place them in categories. And I don't know that I really wanna open all this up but I think it's a huge food for thought how Jung divides things here, right? And, and that he's understanding that both men and women have a deep wrestling with their own sexuality here
1: in order to not be trapped by or trap others. The thing that really stood out to me in this passage is when he says, spirituality and sexuality are not your qualities, not things you possess and encompass. Rather, they possess and encompass you, since they are powerful diamonds, mm-hmm. manifestations of the God. No one escapes them. It is a common task and danger that it's worthy of us. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's asked of us to allow ourselves to be penetrated by them and let them live.
0: Mm-hmm. There's a lot more there. But the sixth mm-hmm. sermon... Begins on page 531. When Philemon had finished, the dead looked on with contempt and said, cease this talk of gods and daimons and souls. We have known this for a long time. But Philemon smiled and replied, you poor souls, poor in flesh and rich in spirit. The meat was fat and the spirit thin. But how do you reach the eternal light? You mock my stupidity, which you too possess. You mock yourselves. Knowledge frees one from danger, but mockery is the other side of your belief. Is black less than white? You rejected faith and retained mockery. Are you thus saved from faith? No. You bound yourselves to mockery and hence again to faith. But the dead were outraged and cried, We are not miserable, we are clever. Our thinking and feeling is as pure as clean water. We praise our reason. We mock superstition. Do you believe that your old folly reaches us? A childish delusion has overcome you, old one. What good is it to us? The sixth sermon. And so it begins there with the daimon of sexuality approaches our soul as a serpent. She -hmm. is half human soul and is called thought desire.
1: The diamond of spirituality descends into our soul as the white beards, bird. So this is what he's, what's on the mandala is this idea of the of the polarities and the opposites tied and inhering in each other. But it's interesting to think of thought, desire, and desire, thought. It's why it's interesting to me what led him to the secret of the golden flower and Chinese thinking, because this is really, for a Western person, such a profound grasp of the yin-yang pair. And the third thing that is engendered from the yin-yang pair moving with each other and inhering in each other. And that for me, that is really something that this sixth sermon is about. Mm -hmm. And then the dead fall silent and slowly creep away.
0: So 534 is the seventh sermon. Another day passed and the seventh night fell. And the dead came again, this time with pitiful gestures and said, we forgot to mention one thing that we would like you to teach us about men. And Philemon stepped before me and began to speak. And this is the seventh sermon to the dead. Man is a gateway through which you pass from the outer world of gods, diamonds, and souls into the inner world, out of the greater into the smaller world. Small and inane is man. Already he is behind you. And once again, you find yourselves in endless space, in the smaller or, in, or inner infinity. At immeasurable distance, a lonely star stands in the zenith. It is the, this is the one God of this one man. This is his world, his pleroma, his divinity. In this world, man is Abraxas, the creator and destroyer of his own world. This star is the God and the goal of man. This is his one guiding God. In him, man goes to his rest. Toward him goes the long journey of the soul after death. In him, everything that man withdraws from the greater world shines resplendently. To this one God, man shall pray. Prayer increases the light of the star. It throws a bridge across death. It prepares life for the smaller world and assuages the hopeless desires of the greater. When the greater world turns cold, the star shines. Nothing stands between man and his one God, so long as man can turn away his eyes from the flaming spectacle of Abraxas. Man here, God there. Weakness and nothingness here, eternally creative power there, here nothing but darkness and clammy cold, there total sun. But when Philemon had finished, the dead remained silent. Heaviness fell from them, and they ascended like smoke above the shepherd's fire who watches over his flock by night. But I, Jung, turned to Philemon and said, Illustrious one, you teach that man is a gateway, a gateway through which the procession of the gods passes, through which the stream of life flows, through which the entire future streams into the endlessness of the past. And Philemon answered, saying, These dead believed in the transformation and development of man. They were convinced of human nothingness and transitoriness." Nothing was clearer to them than this. And yet they knew that man even creates its God. And so they knew that gods were of no use. Therefore, they had to learn what they did not know, that man is a gateway through which crowds the train of the god. Can you read that? Because that sentence is not making sense to me. Uh,
1: It's a gateway through which crowds the train of the gods. The train of the gods is crowding through the gateway and the coming and passing of all times. Life is duration. The flame dies away. I carried, Philemon says, I carried that over. I saved it from the fire. And that is the sun of the fire flower. I am the one who saved it for you. The black and golden seed and its blue starlight. What is time? The fire that flares up, consumes and dies down. I saved being from time. And Jung says, illustrious one, when will you give me the dark and golden treasure and its blue starlight? And Philemon says, when you have surrendered, surrendered everything that wants to burn to the holy flame. And that leads, I think that this is really important to include the conversation that Jung has with his soul about uniting with yeah. Abraxas. Well, why don't you do that part? Because this leads straight to that, I think. Yes. So it's
0: footnote 125, and we're going to start wrapping up here. So this is from the Black Books, right? And it's, and it's um, not included in Scrutinies, but we can now reference it in its full uh, dialogue. So the soul says, you unite yourself with Abraxas through me. First, you give me your heart, and then you live through me. I am the bridge to Abraxas. Thus, the tree of light arises in you, and you become the tree of light, and fanes arises from you. You have anticipated but not understood this. At the time, you had to separate from Abraxas to become individual, opposed to the drive. Now you become one with Abraxas. This happens through me. You cannot do this. Therefore, you must remain within me. Unification with the physical Abraxas occurs through the human field, but female, but unification with the spiritual Abraxas occurs through me. This is why you must be with me. There's two really important Jungian psychology ideas that are in that, maybe more, but the two that are most critical is this notion of the ego, of the self, the small self arising out of the great mother, or arising out of the bra- Abraxas, what Jung terms here, kind of God, everything, so that the ego comes out of the collective unconscious, separates itself, and then in order to get back to it, goes through the anima, goes through the soul. So she says, you unite yourself with the Abraxas through me. Essentially, after leaving Abraxas in order to become yourself, to get back to Abraxas, you you use me as a bridge, the feminine as a bridge. This is a core idea to Jung's psychology that the anima or the animus, depending on gender, the soul is a bridge to the deep self, which is then the opposite gender or the gender of the individual. So that in a way, as the feminine has kind of disappeared or the soul has really shifted throughout the Red Book, this is Jung's beginning of his understanding, what comes to be a lot of analytical psychology, that the soul helped him to get to Philemon, essentially, or the soul helps him to get to Abraxas. There's a lot of different ways that Jung is playing with these ideas, but that the feminine soul helps him to get to his male god, his guru figure that then guides him throughout life.
1: It's the inner alchemical wedding. Yes. And it's what makes the end of the book possible where Philemon asks Jung, do you understand the mystery offered, what you just talked about? Do you understand this holy union? And Jung sees the night, the dark earth, and the sky gleaming in the brilliance of countless stars. And I saw that sky had the form of a woman, and sevenfold was her mantle of stars, and it completely covered her. And Philemon says, Mother, he wants to become your child. May you accept his birth. He needs the bond of childhood. And the mother says, I cannot take him as a child. He must cleanse himself first from his commingling with human suffering and joy, and Jung finds himself alone. And that process, this constant dance of union and separateness, connectedness, and individuation brings him in the end to the garden where he speaks with Christ and where Christ acknowledges the worm, Satan, as his brother. The, this this final, you know, you can feel Jung's fatigue as you get to the end of scrutinies. Like it's still burning in him. His understanding has clarified itself. Things have materialized and reduced themselves in terms of language. And but at the end, it comes down to the garden, the holy garden that he's tending, and the worm in the garden. Do you want to read a little
0: piece of that as we as we conclude? So he's
1: in the he's in the garden and the shade Christ visits the garden and Philemon says you are o oh master in my garden Christ says are we in my garden or are we in your garden Philemon says in my garden Helena or whatever you choose to call her and I are your servants we granted hospitality to your terrible worm Satan and since you come forward, we take you in. It is our garden that surrounds you. And the shade answers, is this garden not mine? Is not the world of the heavens and of the spirits my own? Philemon, you are, O oh master, here in the world of men. Men have changed. They are no longer the slaves and no longer the swindlers of the gods and no longer mourn in your name, but they grant hospitality to the gods, the terrible worm, Satan, came before you, whom you recognize as your brother, insofar as you are part of divine nature, and as your father, insofar as you are of human nature. And the shade says, do I fall for this trick? Have you secretly caught me? And Philemon says, recognize, O master and beloved, that your nature is also of the serpent. Were you not raised on the tree like the serpent? Have you laid aside your body like the serpent, the skin? Have you not practiced the healing arts like the serpent? Did you not go to hell before your ascent? And did you not see your brother there who was shut away in the abyss? And the shade says, you speak the truth. You are not lying. Even so, do you know what I bring you? This I know not, Philemon answered. I know only one thing, that whoever hosts the worm also needs his brother. What do you bring me, my beautiful guest? Lamentation and abomination were the gift of the worm. What will you give us? And the shade answers, I bring you the beauty of suffering. That is what is needed by whoever hosts the worm. Ooh.
0: So we can all just sort of take a collective deep breath as we conclude scrutinies. The last piece I'm going to read here is, is just to sort of feel this circular experience where we are as we fully end both the red book, Liber Primus and Liber Secundus, and then the coda or book three or the sequel book scrutinies coming all the way back around to the very, very, very beginning, and Jung's introduction, small, beautiful, sweet little introduction that he wrote in 1957. If you're interested in reading with me, it's this is just after the index in the very beginning of the reader. It doesn't have a page number. And I'm just going to read it aloud here. Jung in 1957. The years of which I have spoken to you when I pursued the inner images were the most important time of my life. Everything else is to be derived from this. It began at that time, and the latter details hardly matter anymore. My entire life consisted in elaborating what had burst forth from the unconscious and flooded me like an enigmatic stream and threatened to break me. That was the stuff and material for more than only one life. Everything later was merely the outer classification, the scientific elaboration and the integration into life. But the numinous beginning, which contained everything, was then. Mm. So as we end there at the end and the beginning, appreciating this prima materia, that we now get to explore with Jung, this original material of his, that again, the Philemon Foundation has published, now the Black Books, even more prima materia, but we get to see where all of Jung's psychology arose from. And that has been our journey together for the last 28 weeks. We would love now to hear from all of you for our remaining time, whatever you would like to share with us, thoughts, questions, experiences. And let me just check with Anne here as well. Anne, do you want to say something as we start? I would only say
2: that I agree I mean, first you did a phenomenal job of wrapping up 80 pages in an hour and 10 minutes. And my feeling is that I need to go back over scrutinies again and again and again. And why is that? When I first opened it, my sense is, as Carol said in the beginning, it really is more than a summation. It feels like Well, the Tao Te Ching begins the first 37 books about the Tao and the second is all about, all right, how do you, what does that look like if you live it? And that's what I hear in scrutinies. It's, It's very, very deep. It's such psychological insight that what he's really doing is almost laying down the transparent building blocks for what a new ethos of Western civilization will look like. Mm -hmm. And for years, you know, I was always sorry that Jung didn't make the journey to see Ramana Maharshi in India. He was on his way there. Ramana had said he would see see him. And then he had that dream, which made him return to the West. And I went back and I re-looked at it. The dream is incredible, I won't speak about that. But he he suddenly says, what am I doing in India? What are you doing in India? Rather, seek for yourself and your fellows the healing vessel. I think that's what we're looking at there in scrutinies, The servitor mundi, which you urgently need for your state is perilous. And we can really see that today. You are all in imminent danger of destroying all that centuries have built up. And as I was reading Scrutinies, I realized he did that. He went back and did exactly whatever, whether it was Philemon who sent him that dream or Philemon and Baucus or Salome, he did it. And I stand in total awe. Thank
0: you, Anne. So appreciate that. All right, Francis, hi
3: hi so that that resonates it feels like there's an undercurrent throughout from the secret of the golden flower and the even the language on the top of page 509 it feels like it could have come straight out of that nothingness is the same as fullness and infinity is as good as empty and the, I have a sense that the idea from *Secret of the Golden Flower* of the lower soul, which is in the body, and the higher soul, which is in the beyond, it feels like a lot of scru- scrutinies is this is wrestling with the soul in the lower body and processing that to be able to then evolve. My word, not his, into into the higher soul. So I guess what I'm wondering, and I appreciate thoughts about is, is part of Scrutinies he's working through what he's learned and read in Secret of the Golden Flower, or is he trying to integrate?
1: No.
0: It it will be another 12 years before Jung learns about the Secret of the Golden Flower, and it's a really important point. I'm just going to hold up the book here. You know, Richard Wilhelm was a massively important figure in Jung's life, although they only knew each other for a couple years, I believe, before he died, unfortunately. But When Wilhelm sent Jung the secret of the golden flower, it was shortly after Jung had created that extraordinary image in the Red Book of the golden castle, the yellow castle, which Mm. Jung felt had a distinctly Chinese feel to it. And shortly after that, now that's, again, we're talking in the late 1920s, so this is 14 years, 15 years after the original visions that Jung had. So all this time, he's taking all this original material and slowly digesting it, turning it into a draft and and putting it into the calligraphic text, and then drawing all the ima- or painting all these images, right? So he had created all of this. All these dialogues with Philemon were, were long preceding the encounter with the secret of the golden flower. But it's that encounter that helped him to understand that finally all of these visions that had been pouring out from him that he had been faithfully recording did have in fact a parallel in the world. And that his psychology, it gave him a lot of strength to continue working through his psychology of individuation because he now began to understand alchemy as a early version of what he was working through, the psychology of alchemy.
3: Thank you, that's helpful.
0: Part of what is so tricky about all this is the various drafts, the various timing of all the drafts, when, when various versions of the Red Book were created and all of this. But this original material all okay. preceded Wilhelm. And in fact, again, when he completely lays off and stops working on the illuminated manuscript is when he encounters Wilhelm. And he just stops caring in a way because he finally has something else to investigate beyond his own visions. Got it. OK, thank you. It's a really important clarification, Francis. Thank you. Okay, Tamara.
4: Hi. Um I've been I've been listening for quite a long time in the background and just first of all I wanted to just say how much I have appreciated and enjoyed what you're doing. It's just incredible. I'm um just transitioning from the clinic the, from the um classes part into the dissertation part of a PhD at Pacifica.
0: Congratulations.
4: Um, um, yeah. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> um <laughs> And uh, wanted to speak to um, a struggle that or an insight that I've had recently with my own struggle between the masculine and the feminine. And uh, my background is South African. My family has been in South Africa for many generations. And I grew up kind of um, as a first generation Canadian, but um, with all of my family in South Africa and watching the transition from apartheid into the new South Africa and have just recognized some of the resonances between their transition and ours and the wisdom, um, the racial integration and the real struggle that white South Africans have had with integrating racial problems and issues and some of the really incredible work that's coming out of South Africa. What I wanted to share is just um, me returning to Nelson Mandela and um, watching a documentary on him that was all original photos that were taken. And um, the idea of Nelson Mandela being such an incredible figure in terms of um, the masculine and, and a way to hold authority in a particular way. But the insight that I've recently had is who his wife was. And Winnie Mandela was just such a problematic figure and was so denigrated and in some ways was a shadow figure him and to me made him possible
1: mm-hmm. and
4: so like just sort of deepening into that and then thinking about the positive and the negatives and the union of the opposites and all that and so I just wanted to share that with the group yeah. and say you know there's another place in the world that's been through um, some particular hell around the same kind of stuff that I think we're trying to deal with now mm-hmm. that might have some wisdom for us. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I thank you for that. I, um, I'll be very brief about this. As an astrologer looking at 2021 and beyond and in preparing for the age of Aquarius that the salon did um, last month, I got very interested in the figure of Saturn, in the mythological figure of Saturn and the psychological figure of Saturn. And um, Mandela was actually one of the, just the pictures that I gazed at to try and think about the Saturnian energy of a container that holds things. And in the process of that, I wrote to uh, a man that Satya has had on, on the Salome salons, Kwame Scruggs, and said to him, I have no resources in African mythology, and where would you point me? And so he very kindly sent has sent me several really extraordinary resources where I have been looking for Saturn, where I've been looking for the wise old man. And it's not, so far, this is very preliminary, pache, cultural appropriation, all of that. Where the wisdom comes from is the unity of the whole. It's the animals, it's the jungle itself, it's the voices of the whole tribe. It doesn't localize itself like it does in our culture to one containing, confining individual. And I have a lot more homework to do, but that this really touches touches me uh, and touches into a question that all of this material has raised for me. As we go forward, as we try to understand we, not I, how have our stories shaped our understanding so that we continue to choose what we know rather than opening ourselves to other possibilities. And Jung is such a powerful figure around that of the union of opposites, polarities, and where wholeness actually comes from. There's a a, a wonderful section in Scrutinies where he talks about, you know, community is horizontal and singleness is vertical. And and I think that you're really speaking to that, including the Mandelas themselves, but I, I, am, I am, it's a next arena of study for me. I, it has touched me really, really deeply. Thank you.
0: Yeah, Thank you, Tamara. Um, I have mentioned in previous salons that before I found Jung, I was studying Mandela and also Gandhi, and specifically both of their experiences in prison in South Africa, and the ways that their political careers um, but also psychology developed, of course, for Mandela, but also for Gandhi in South Africa. But I realized in retrospect, I was studying their journeys of individuation before I found Jung. And I have not gone back to really look at Winnie as a female figure in that. I was very compelled with her at the time. This is his first wife, right? And a very tumultuous marriage. no,
4: She was, she was his second wife. They were married all through his time in prison and she was sort of his voice outside of prison, but she got involved in some really ugly stuff and he came out and within a year they were getting divorced and then he ended up with somebody else. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. It's a very powerful question. I mean, I'm really compelled by that to go back and study that now is how does she show up in his psychology? Because he really does as Carol was speaking to her to in her presentation, you know, um, sh- he is an image of an integrated male, so to speak, or the integrated masculine. How did these all of these energies get, get sorted in him? And of course, this is happening all over the world. There's nowhere that humans exist where individuation is not unfolding and the wrestling with racial opposites and gendered opposites is not unfolding. So thanks for bringing that in, appreciate
1: yeah. it. No, and I just want to add here, prison is a 12th house astrological 12th house activity and to say that we are in confinement and the possibilities of the confinement is and the the possibilities of contraction and confinement and the inward turn are profound
5: yeah hi janet we'll end with you today hello Oh, thank you very much. I'm here in the UK. It's completely dark now. Um I, I just a, a question, I'm tempted to say a simple question, but it might well not be. Philemon, we in in uh Libus Secundus, we meet Philemon and Borcus in their garden, and Jung is really um, quite sort of um superior about them. Oh, this is the magician, and they're old and frail and toddling about. But in Scrutinies, Philemon appears as this really powerful character who speaks to the gods. So this whole transformation has taken place and I feel I've kind of missed it. And I almost wonder whether it took place in that period when you're saying Jung didn't write anything down. There was a sort of silence during some part of World War I between um, the original material appearing and then that there was a, a further phase is, is there something more that you you can elucidate about that or where it's explained or described somehow how does philemon suddenly become this really powerful magician guy hmm. it's a great it's
0: a great and important point and and there's a lot to be said about it. I don't think you've actually missed anything. I think this is why I wrestle with this actually being the third book of the Red Book versus some kind of sequel or some other version of something, some pieces of which may have been wound into earlier drafts, whereas this was its own draft found separately. I think there's a lot of different ways to really digest this material, but but there's no question that Philemon takes on a different form just as salome takes on a very different form in different parts of the book particularly in the end as we explored i think last week versus the beginning Uh, the serpent is different you know jung is kind of taking what shows up and naming it and changing the names too there are times when you look at the black books and and sonu has named this in a lot of the footnotes where you know in the black books you have the soul and now in the red book, it's God, you know, or you have, it's Philemon, and now it's the I, or vice versa. So, so you can start to tease that apart a little bit. When he published the seven sermons, he didn't attribute it to Philemon originally. And I think in the black books, it wasn't Philemon. So, so we're just opening it all up. But it is a little curious, how does Philemon become this completely other figure? It's a good question. Yeah, and there's this other last little piece that that in part of the editorial notes, Jung made a statement that he thinks everything that came before was also coming in its essence from Philemon. Mm. I personally kind of don't think that's true. I mean, we're just, this is just now a question of terms. You know, it's a question of how does Jung name all this material coming out of his unconscious. So I think take all of it a little bit with a grain of salt um, as you do your own research. Really what I think Carol and I are hoping to do in this whole long journey we've all been on now is to just provide kind of some doorways into your own research as much as you're interested in continuing to dive because we have the raw materials now to do it. And there's a lot of Jung's work, the psychology that has become really codified and turned into different terms and and concepts that we can swallow whole without really deeply wrestling with it. And, And we have the opportunity here to deeply wrestle with all these questions that arise in the material. So thank you for your question, Janet. Thank you all for your questions.
1: Thank you all for being with us in this incredible journey.
0: For more, please visit salomeinstitute.com, and please review, rate, and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Many thanks to our incredible podcast team, to Ann Carroll for German translation and soulful insights, to our producer Ayol Alvis for turning this rough audio into a podcast, to Kelly Swenson for your dedicated work behind the scenes, to Haley Hendrix for the incredible podcast music, and to Ray Davis for our beautiful art. You're all brilliant and talented, and we're very grateful. Please tune in soon for another episode of the Salome Podcast.